Chapter 2 of A Coin of Edward the Seventh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marcel D. Ward. TheSoulExpands.com. A Coin of Edward the Seventh by Fergus Hume. Chapter 2 An Anonymous Letter. After the ride of the evening came the silence of the night. The children departed amidst the stormy laughter of Morley, and it was Anne's task to see that the triplets were put comfortably to bed. She sat in the nursery and watched the washing and undressing and hair curling, and listened to their joyous chatter about the wonderful presents and the wonderful pleasures of that day. Afterwards, when they were safely tucked away, she went down to supper and received the compliments of Morley on her capability in entertaining children. Mrs. Morley also, and in a more genuine way, added her quota of praise. "'You are my right hand, Miss Denham,' she said, with a smile in her weary blue eyes. "'I don't know what I shall do without you.' "'Oh, Miss Denham is not going,' said the master of the house. "'Who knows?' smiled Anne. I have always been a wanderer, and it may be that I shall be called away suddenly. It was on the tip of Morley's tongue to ask by whom, but the hardening of Anne's face and the flash of her dark eyes made him change his mind. All the same, he concluded that there was someone by whom she might be summoned and guessed also that the obeying of the call would come as an unwilling duty. Mrs. Morley saw nothing of this. She had not much brain power, and what she had was devoted to considerations dealing with the passing hour. At the present moment, she could only think that it was time for supper, and that all present were hungry and tired. Hungry Anne certainly was not, but she confessed to feeling weary. Making some excuse, she retired to her room, but not to sleep. When the door was locked, she put on her dressing gown, shook down her long black hair, and sat by the fire. Her thoughts were not pleasant. Filled with shame at the knowledge of his treachery towards the woman he was engaged to marry, and Giles had kept close to Daisy's side during supper and afterwards. He strove to interest himself in her somewhat childish chatter and made her so happy by his mere presence that her face was shining with smiles. Transfigured by love and by gratified vanity, Daisy looked really pretty and in her heart was scornful of poor Anne thus left out in the cold. She concluded that Giles loved her best after all and did not see how he every now and then stealthily glanced at the governess wearily striving to interest herself in the breezy conversation of Morley or the domestic chatter of his wife. In her heart, Anne had felt a pang at this desertion. Although she knew that it was perfectly justifiable and unable to bear the sight of Daisy's brilliant face, she retired thus early. She loved Giles. It was no use blinking fact. She loved him, 
with every fiber of her nature and with a passion far stronger than could be felt for him by the golden-haired doll with the shallow eyes. For Giles, she would have lost the world, but she would not have him lose his for her. And after all, she had no right to creep like a serpent into the Eden of silly, prattling Daisy. In her own puny way, the child, for she was little else, adored Giles, and as he was her affianced lover, it would be base to come between her and her God. But Anne knew in her heart that Giles loved her best. If she did but lift her hand, he would leave all and follow her to the world's end. But lift her hand she would not. It would be too cruel to break the butterfly daisy on such a painful wheel. Anne loved sufficiently to be large and generous in her nature and therefore broke her own heart to spare the breaking of another woman's. Certainly Giles was as unhappy as she was. That was patent in his looks and bearing, but he had forged his own chains and could not break them without dishonor. And come what may, Giles would always love her best. Anne's meditations were disturbed by a knock at the door. Glancing at the clock, she saw it was close on midnight. And wondering who wished to see her at so late an hour, she opened the door. Daisy, in a blue dressing gown, with her golden hair loose and her face flushed, entered the room. She skipped towards Anne with a happy laugh and threw her arms round her neck. I could not sleep without telling you how happy I am, she said, and with a look of triumph displayed the ring. Anne's heart beat violently at this visible sign of the barrier between her and Giles. However, she was too clever a woman to betray her emotion and examine the ring with a forced smile. Diamonds for your eyes, rubies for your lips, she said softly. A very pretty fancy. Daisy was annoyed. She would rather that Anne had betrayed herself by some rude speech, or, at least, by discomposed manner. To make her heart ache, Daisy had come, and from all she could see, she had not accomplished her aim. However, she still tried to wring some sign of emotion from the expression or lips of the calm governess. Giles promised me a ring over and over again, she said, her eyes fixed on Anne. We have been engaged for over six months. He asked me just before you came, although it was always an understood thing. His father and mine arranged the engagement, you know. I didn't like the idea at first as I wanted to make my own choice. Every girl should, I think. Don't you? Certainly, Anne forced herself to say. But you love Mr. Ware. Daisy nodded. Very, very much, she assented emphatically. I must have loved him without knowing it. But I was only certain when he asked me to marry him. How lucky it is he has to make me his wife, she sighed. If he were not bound... Here she stopped suddenly. 
and looked into the other woman's eyes. What nonsense, said Anne good-humouredly, and more composed than ever. Mr. Ware loves you dearly. You are the one woman he would choose for his wife. There is no compulsion about his choice, my dear. Do you really think so? demanded the girl feverishly. I thought it was the ring, you know. What do you mean, Daisy? He never would give me the ring, although I said it was ridiculous for a girl to be engaged without one. He always made some excuse, and only tonight. But I have him safe now, she added with a fierce abruptness, and I'll keep him. Nobody wants to take him from you, dear. Do you really think so? said Miss Kent again. Then why did he delay giving me the ring? Anne knew well enough. After her first three meetings with Giles, she had seen the love light in his eyes, and his reluctance to bind himself irrevocably with the ring was due to a hope that something might happen to permit his choosing for himself. But nothing had happened. The age of miracles being passed, and the vow to his dead father bound him. Therefore, on this very night, he had locked his shackles and had thrown away the key, and had made it plain to him that she could not, nor would she, help him to play a dishonorable part. He had accepted his destiny, and now Daisy asked why he had not accepted it before, and made a feeble excuse, the best she could think of. Perhaps he did not see a ring pretty enough, she said. It might be that replied Daisy reflectively. Giles has such good taste. You did not show me what he gave you tonight. Miss Denham would rather not have shown it. But she had no excuse to refuse a sight of the gift. Without a word, she slipped the bangle from her wrist. Daisy's jealous eyes noted that she had kept it on till now and handed it to the girl. Oh, how sweet and pretty, she cried, with artificial cordiality. Just a ring of gold with a coin attached. May I look? And without waiting for permission, she ran to the lamp. The coin was a half-sovereign of Edward Seventh, with three stones, a diamond, an amethyst, and a pearl, set in a triangle, a thin ring of gold, attached it to the bangle. Daisy was not ill-pleased that the gift was so simple. Her engagement ring was much more costly. It's a cheap thing, she said contemptuously. The coin is quite common. It will be rare some day, said Anne, slipping the bangle on her wrist. The name of the king is spelt on this one, E-D-W-A-R-D-U-S whereas in the Latin it should be E-D-V-A-R-D-U-S. I believe the issue is to be called in. Consequently, coins of this sort will be rare some day. It was kind of Mr. Ware to give it to me. Daisy paid no attention to this explanation. An amethyst, a diamond, and a pearl, she said. 
Why did he have those three stones set in the half-sovereign? Anne turned away her face, for it was burning red. She knew very well what the stones signified, but she was not going to tell this jealous creature. Daisy's wits, however, were made keen by her secret anger, and after a few moments of thought she jumped up, clapping her hands. I see it! The initials of your name. Amethyst stands for Anne, and Diamond for Denim. It might be so, replied Miss Denham coldly. It is so, said Daisy, her small face growing white and pinched. But what does the pearl mean? Ah, that you are a pearl. Nonsense, Daisy. Go you to bed, and don't imagine things. It is not imagination, cried the girl shrilly, and you know that well, Anne. What right have you to come and steal Giles from me? He is yours, said Anne sharply. The ring? Oh, yes, the ring. I have his promise to marry me, but you have his heart. Don't I know? Give me that bangle. And she stretched out her hand with a clutching gesture. No said Anne sternly. I shall keep my present. Go to bed. You are overtired. Tomorrow you will be wiser. I am wise now. Too wise. You have made Giles love you. I have not. I swear I have not, said Anne, beginning to lose her composure. You have, and you love him. I see it in your face. Who are you to come into my life and spoil it? I am a governess. That is all you need to know. You look like a governess, said Daisy insultingly. I believe you are a bad woman and came here to steal Giles from me. Daisy! Anne rose to her feet and walked towards the door. I have had quite enough of your hysterical nonsense. If you came here to insult me in this way, it is time you went. Mr. Ware and I were complete strangers to one another when I came here. Strangers? And what are you now? Friends. Nothing more, nothing less. So you say. And I dare say Giles would say the same thing did I ask him. Anne's face grew white and set. She seized the foolish, hysterical little creature by the wrist and shook her. I'll tell you one thing, she said softly, and her threat was the more terrible for the softness. I have black blood in my veins, for I was born at Martinique. And if you talk to Giles about me, I'll, I'll kill you. Go and pray to God that you may be rid of this foolishness. Daisy, wide-eyed, pallid, and thoroughly frightened, fled whimpering and sought refuge in her own room. Anne closed the door and locked it so as to prevent a repetition of this unpleasant visit. Then she went to open the window, for the air of the room seemed tainted by the presence of Daisy. Flinging wide the casement, Anne leaned out into the bitter air and looked at the wonderful white snow world, glittering 
in the thin, chill moonlight. She drew several long breaths and became more composed. Sufficient, indeed, to wonder why she had behaved in so melodramatic a fashion. It was not her custom to so far break through the conventions of civilization. But the insults of Daisy had stirred in her that wild negro blood to which she had referred. That this girl, who had all she grudged, her the simple Christmas present made and furious. Yet in spite of her righteous anger, she could not help feeling sorry for Daisy. And, after all, the girl's jealousy had some foundation in truth. Anne had given her no cause, but she could not deny that she loved Giles and that he loved her. To end an impossible situation, there was nothing for it but flight. Next day, Anne quite determined to give Mrs. Morley notice but when she found that Daisy said nothing about her visit, she decided to remain silent. Unless the girl made herself impossible, Anne did not see why she should turn out of a good situation where she was earning excellent wages. Daisy avoided her and was coldly polite on such occasions as they had to speak. Seeing this, Anne forbore to force her company upon the unhappy girl and attended to her duties. These were sufficiently pleasant, for the three children adored her. They were not clever, but extremely pretty and gentle in their manners. Mrs. Morley often came to sit and sew in the schoolroom while Anne taught. She was fond of the quiet, calm governess, and prattled to her just as though she were a child herself of the perfections of Mr. Morley and her unhappy early life. For the sake of the children, she forbore to mention the name of their father, who, from her account, had been a sad rascal. Giles came sometimes to dine, but attended chiefly to Daisy. Anne was content that this should be so, and her rival made the most of the small triumph. Indeed, so attentive was Giles that Daisy came to believe she had been wrong in suspecting he loved the governess. She made no further reference to Anne, but when Miss Denham was present, narrowly watched her attitude and that of Ware. Needless to say, she saw nothing to awaken her suspicions, for both Giles and Anne were most careful to hide their real feelings. So far the situation was endurable, but it could not continue indefinitely. Anne made up her mind to leave. On the day before New Year, she was wondering what excuse she could make to get away when an accident happened which set her duty plainly before her and did away with all necessity for an excuse. It occurred at breakfast. The little man was fond of his meals and enjoyed his breakfast more than any other. He had the most wonderful arrangement for keeping the dishes hot, a rather needless proceeding as he was invariably punctual. So were Mrs. Morley and Anne, for breakfast being at nine o'clock, they had no excuse for being late. Nevertheless, Daisy rarely contrived to be in time, and Morley was much vexed 
than by her persistent unpunctuality. On this occasion, she arrived late as usual, but more cheerful. She ever greeted Anne with a certain amount of politeness. There is a letter for you, said Morley. But if you will take my advice, you will leave it until breakfast is over. I never read mine until after a meal. Bad news is so apt to spoil one's appetite. How do you know the news will be bad? Asked Daisy. Most news is, replied Morley, with a shade on his usually merry face. Debts, duns, and difficulties. And he looked ruefully at the pile of letters by his plate. I haven't examined my correspondence yet. Anne said nothing as she was thinking of what arrangement she could make to get away. Suddenly, she and the others were startled by a cry from Daisy. The girl had opened the letter and was staring at it with a pale face. Anne half rose from her seat, but Mrs. Morley anticipated her and ran round to put her hand on the girl's shoulder. Daisy? What is the matter? The... The letter, gasped Daisy with chattering teeth. Then she cast a look full of terror at the astonished Anne. She will kill me, cried the girl and fell off the chair in a faint. Morley hastily snatched up the letter. It was unsigned and apparently written in an uneducated hand on common paper. He read it out hurriedly while Anne and Mrs. Morley stood amazed to hear its contents. Honored Miss, read Morley slowly, this is from a well-wisher to say that you must not trust the governess who will kill you because of G.W. and the Scarlet Cross. Anne uttered a cry and sank back into her chair, white as the snow out of doors. The Scarlet Cross, she murmured, again the Scarlet Cross. End of chapter 2 Recording by Marcel D. Ward, thesoulexpands.com